All right, here we go. Um, Heavenly Father, as, we're, uh, as we continue to study the, the book of Hebrews today, um, we see that this author um, is really at pains to convince those of us that read it that Christ is superior to all else. Um, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus's preeminence and superiority in all things and that we would have hearts that love and honor him more deeply because of that. Um, as we look at a passage in Hebrews that's a little bit tricky, um, we pray that you would give us the attention that we would need, uh, the memories that we need in order to understand this and uh, be able to, to move through it. And we ask for wisdom. We ask that by your grace you would teach us and that through it we wouldn't just know more in our heads, but that we would have a greater love of Christ in our hearts and that we would have a greater desire to model him in our lives. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Book of Hebrews has four main, what type of arguments? Good to better better arguments. Um, We've gone through three of them. What was the first one? Better than the prophets. prophets. Number two? Angels. Angels. And why is that one important? What did the angels do? They gave the law, law, right? Um, There's this idea in Paul's writings and in the book of Hebrews, and just kind of in Jewish thought in general, that at Sinai, the law was handed down from God to angels to Moses. And so they had a message that they delivered. It was the law. So prophets, angels, and then what was the third one? Moses. 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 All right. And then what's the fourth one going to be? Priest and sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, priest and, and priest stuff. So we'll kind of lump sacrifices and priests together. So um, the priest argument really, it, it, it's mentioned in Hebrews 2. It really starts up at the end of Hebrews 4 after that warning passage that we looked at yesterday that compared the church to the wilderness generation. Um, what we want to do, though, today is um, just, just kind of for the purposes of this class, um, the, the section where he deals with Jesus being a greater priest— starts at the end of chapter 4, and it goes all the way through the end of chapter 10. So it's a really big section, and there's a lot of different things that he argues in it. And so instead of going like passage by passage through that, you know, six whole chapters, what I really want to do, and what I think is going to be easier on us, is to look at it more thematically, kind of topically. And so um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions here at the beginning of class. And then we're going to see how the author of Hebrews wrestles with them. We'll we'll mainly be looking at Hebrews 7. Um, Tomorrow we'll go back and look at some of the content from 4 and 5 and then 8, 9, and 10. Okay. So um, 7 is is really where we're going to be today. Um, But here's a question. The author of Hebrews is going to make the argument that Jesus is greater than all the priests from the Old Testament, and that he is offered a greater sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Now, what type of people uh, is the author of Hebrews writing to? Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews. They're, they're Jewish Christians. They're trying to go back to Judaism. Do what? Trying to go back to Judaism. Yeah, they're tempted to go back to Judaism. Why? Yeah, this is a, a small stretch of time in first century history where Christianity is illegal, but Judaism is legal. So these people um, are, are very tempted to stop being Christians and to go back to Judaism because they could escape persecution if they did. All right? Reasonable? 
you can kind of you can kind of feel where they're coming from on that. The author of Hebrews, though, is trying to convince them not to do that. And so he's going to try to make this argument here in a moment that Jesus is greater than the priest that Judaism has to offer and that he's greater than the sacrifices that Judaism has to offer. So they shouldn't let go of Christ. But um, somebody who is, you know, one of these Jewish Christians who's tempted to fall back into Judaism could make a very interesting argument against the author of Hebrews at this point. Old Testament priests always come from what tribe? They're all Levites. Jesus comes from what tribe? Judah. Because he's descended from who? David, David, right? Um, So, what might a a Jewish Christian who is tempted to go back into Judaism, what what might they, they argue at this point? He's not a Levite, so he can't be a priest. Now, you all have probably grown up with this understanding that Jesus is your high priest. Even if you've been fuzzy on what that means before, that type of language makes sense to you. And the idea that Jesus made a priestly offering on the cross that could take away your sins, like that's something that's just kind of like common knowledge to us who have grown up with the Bible and grown up in church, right? Um, This argument, though, is something that the author of Hebrews takes really seriously. This is something that, that he, he understands where his opponents might be coming from, and he thinks it's something that he needs to be able to answer persuasively. All right? How can Jesus be a priest when he's from Judah and he's not from Levi? And if you did your reading from last week, you, you read this tricky passage in Hebrews 7, and I'm not, um, I'm not uh, expecting that you kind of got all the ins and outs of the argument, but what basically does the author argue? You raise your Melchizedek wasn't a priest from Levi because he was Abraham's generation? Yeah, he, he goes back and he starts arguing. Um, we see this actually back in chapter 5 for a moment. Um, verse 6, um, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is going to base all of his argumentation on this idea. Jesus is a priest. He's not a Levitical priest. Why is he not a Levitical priest? He's not a Levite. But he is a real priest. He's a priest after, this, after the order of this guy named Melchizedek. And he's going to try to argue that Melchizedek had a bigger and greater priesthood than the Levites did. So that raises the question for us. Who is Melchizedek? The king of the ancient city of Salem before the Hebrews captured it and renamed it Jerusalem. Yeah. You guys remember Melchizedek from Old Testament last year? He shows up in two passages of scripture and both of them are really weird. All right, number one, he shows up in Genesis chapter 14. Um, Abraham, you guys remember Abraham? No, you guys know who Abraham is? is? You got some under, you know, we, we, we talk about him every other day, you know. So um, Abraham had a nephew whose name was what? Lot. Lot. Where did Lot decide to live? Sodom. Yeah, he decided to live near Sodom. And then um, you guys remember Big Cheese from last year? You guys remember... Um, there was, uh, uh, while, while uh, Lot was, was living near Sodom, 
uh, the kings of Sodom made this really powerful king named Cheddar Laomer mad. Do you remember oh. Cheddar Laomer? Big cheese. Um, and so, you guys remember him? I remember. And so, Cheddar Laomer, um, Violet, are you just restaurant? Yeah, go ahead. Um, Cheddar Laomer decides, I'm going to go to battle, and um, it's the kings of, um, of like, Five nations against the kings of four cities. And Sodom and Gomorrah is like, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll join this. And um, Sodom and Gomorrah gets wrecked by Cheddar Laomer. Their army gets destroyed. Lot gets captured and carried into um, like slavery, basically. Abraham takes 318 men with him. He goes and he fights Cheddar Laomer. He beats him, miraculously, because God's with him. He takes all of the stuff of Sodom, including Lot, and he starts to go home, and he's going to give it back to the king of Sodom. And on the way, as he's going out to meet the king of Sodom, he passes by a city named Salem. And what is Salem? Peace. Yeah, um, Salem, uh, it means peace. And if I told you that the Hebrew word for city was Jeru, um, what is Salem? the city of peace, but if um, Jeru is city, Salem is peace, put them together and you get what? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. So, um, Melchizedek is, um, uh, is this figure who is king of Salem. So, his name would literally translate to, uh, or his title would be king of, king of Jerusalem, king of peace, right? Um, but this is the city of Jerusalem. So he's king at Jerusalem. Um, Hebrews chapter 7 also says that the name Melchizedek means, you remember what it means? Um, somebody read Hebrews 7 verses 1 and 2 for us. So what does the name Melchizedek mean? King of Righteousness. Yeah, it means King of Righteousness. So Abraham has defeated Chedorlaomer. Omer. He's heading home, and he passes by um, the city of Salem, old Jerusalem. And this king named Melchizedek comes out, and Melchizedek blesses him. All right, Melchizedek is a king, but he's also a what? He's also a priest. He's a, he's a, he's a priest king. So um, this priest king of Jerusalem comes out, and he blesses Abraham. All right? And then what does Abraham give him? A tenth of everything. A tenth of everything, which we would call a? Tithe. He tithes. Uh, all right? So Abraham, um, so, so the priest king blesses Abraham, and then Abraham responds... Um, by giving Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of everything. All right? Um, who, what group of people did Jerusalem belong to before it was conquered by David and all of them? Remember, they don't conquer it under Joshua. They conquer it under David. Who did Jerusalem belong to before that? 
Canaanites. Canaanites. So um, Melchizedek is a Jew or Gentile? Gentile. He is a big time Gentile. But is he a true priest? Mm-hmm. He sure is. And the text over and over again says that he is a priest to God Most High, which is a title that right after Abraham meets Melchizedek in Genesis 14, Melchizedek says, um, blessed be Abram by God Most High. Abraham starts using that phrase, God Most High, and applying it to the God that he worships. So does Melchizedek, is he a priest to a false God or to the true God? God. To the true God. So he's a true priest to the true God, even though he's a Canaanite, even though he's not a Levite. Um. Somebody read verse 3 of Hebrews 7. Well, that's strange. Theophany? Well, if it's a theophany, you guys know what a theophany means? We've got, you have a question? Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. <laughs> Theophany, um, theos, what, what does theos mean? God. God. God, and then phantom is the root word of fanny there. Um, not fanny pack, but, uh, you know, um, so, so a phantom is an appearance, so, so a God appearance, right? Um, some people try to take Melchizedek as a theophany on the basis of chapter 7, verse 3, like an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. I think that's hard to do. Because this text is going to make the argument that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Which would be a very weird thing to say if Melchizedek is Jesus, right? Um, that, would, that, would, that would be a little bit confusing. It also says that Jesus only becomes a priest after the order of Melchizedek um, by, by his indestructible life in verse 16. So basically um, his death and resurrection is what kind of initiates him into the priesthood. So it seems to be something that Jesus like comes into, not just something that he, that he has. So um, I would resist the theophany interpretation personally. Um, I have very good friends that hold it. One of my professors at Bryan holds it very tightly. Um, and I, I think that he's a brilliant person. Um, by the way, what does Melchizedek give Abram? Abram gives him a tithe. What does Melchizedek give him? Blessing. He gives him a blessing. What else? A meal. You know what he gives him in the meal? Bread and wine. Help me with that. Yeah, I mean, whenever the author of Hebrews says in every way he resembles the Son of God, like, I mean, he's being kind of serious there, right? Yeah. Excuse me if I'm jumping ahead here, but... If Melchizedek is the dude that was like any king that's in Jerusalem is also a priest, and Jesus died in Jerusalem, right? So he was like made king of everything in Jerusalem. That means that oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to jump into that, even though I was going to save it later for the because Izzy really wants to go there, so we'll go there. Yeah. So, so what we see in the Old Testament, um, we see something like this really interesting phenomenon. All right. Um, Melchizedek is a king priest, and usually those offices are very separate, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Like, very separate. Um, 
that he's a king priest in Jerusalem. And something really weird happens in the books of Samuel, first and second Samuel. Saul becomes king. Saul is a good king or bad king? Bad king. Bad king. And like the worst thing that Saul does is what? You remember? Um, he's about to go to a battle and Samuel says, wait seven days and I'll show up and I'll offer a what? Sacrifice. And then Samuel's not showing up and Saul is getting antsy. So what does Saul do? Peace out to the battlefield. He does the sacrifice himself. Now, is he a priest? No. No, he is a king. And Saul offers a sacrifice. And Samuel then shows up right afterwards and says, you have sinned. God is going to what? Take away your kingdom. Take away your kingdom and give it to someone better than you. Which, like, you imagine that hurts to hear, right? <laughs> you are bad, and God's going to find someone better. Um, you know, uh, kind, of a, kind of a rough, uh, rough statement there. Um, but Saul offers a sacrifice. He acts like a priest, and that is what brings judgment on him. Uh, David, very, very interesting. David rules for about the first seven years of his reign in a city called Hebron. Right. Seven years into his reign, he goes to war and he defeats the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he immediately decides, I'm going to move my capital to Jerusalem. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant in and he dances in a linen ephod. A lot of people are like, David danced in his underwear. That's stupid. That's not what he does. He dances in a linen ephod. What type of person in the Old Testament wears a linen ephod? A priest. So David, as he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, dresses up like a priest and is dancing and worshiping before it, very priestly duty, two of David's sons then are appointed what? Do you know? Second Samuel, two of his sons are appointed priest, and the text never says anything bad about it. Samuel's, uh, you know, the, the book of Samuel never says anything bad about it. The prophets in the days of David never say anything bad about it. Two of his prince sons are appointed priests. But this only happens after he becomes king in what place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Very end of the book of 2 Samuel. Do you remember how that ends from last year? Look back at it. David sins. He takes a census. He shouldn't have taken the census. Why should he not have taken the census? Probably something about pride, but it never like fully explains I think that he just has a standing army, which are, is not something kings of Israel are supposed to have. Yeah. So um, he has a standing army. He wants to see how big it is. So he takes a census and, and God sends a judgment, um, sends a plague on Israel because of this. And um, somebody read um, 2 Samuel 24 verses 18 through the end of the book. Aruna. The Jebusite, so David went up against Bird, and the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, and when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes for the, of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives 
to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offering offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50, 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So plague is on Israel, and God says, hey, David, you want to fix it? And David says, yeah. And God says, here's what you can do. And what does he, what does he tell, command David to do? Offer a sacrifice. Get the priest to offer a sacrifice? David offers a sacrifice. Saul's judged for doing that. David's commanded to do it. Um, the priestly stuff David does, though, only happens after he moves his capital where? To Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. And then, uh, it's not just David. Uh, what's David's son's name? Solomon. Solomon. What does Solomon build? The temple. The temple. And then whenever it's time to dedicate the temple, you know, make it holy and pray that God's presence would come and dwell on it and everything, it's not the high priest that does any of that. Who is it that does all of the songs? Who is it that does all of the prayers? Solomon. Solomon. As he's kneeling on the altar. So there's something to this idea, even in the Old Testament, that whenever a king becomes king in Jerusalem, they stop just being a king, but these offices start to merge a little bit. They're kings in the place where Melchizedek was king. So the office of Melchizedek is now their office. And the office of Melchizedek is that you are a king priest. Are you a Levitical priest? No. No. You're a, and here's a fun word, Melchizedekian. You you can go home and what did you learn at school today? I learned about the Melchizedekian priesthood. And then everyone thinks you're smart, right? So um, there's something to this idea that Jerusalem, for some reason is special. And if you're king there, you're not just king, but you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the Melchizedekian priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, they're separate things. So does that give the the king, you know, access to the Holy of Holies if he wants to? No, there's there's a separation of duties still, but there are priestly duties that kings can rightly do. Yeah. Yeah. So that would raise the question of why Jerusalem is special? Like, why is it if you become king in Jerusalem, um, you can all of a sudden, you know, have this uh, priestly duty given to you? And um, I don't know if I really want to answer that question because it's going to take a while. Actually, yeah, I do. Um, But I want to make you work for it a little bit. Um, Who is the first king priest in all of the Bible? Not David. Not David, because Melchizedek's before him. Who did you say? I said Adam. How is it Adam? Yeah, all of creation. We saw this. Two, was it yesterday that I did the creation thing with you guys from Hebrews 4? Yes. All of creation is like this giant temple. That's what Genesis 1 is driving at. And whenever Adam is put in the temple, he's supposed to guard and keep it. Those are verbs that in the book of Numbers are always applied to um, the priest, right? He's the one who's ministering in the 
temple, garden, sanctuary that's like a holy of holies. He's walking in communion with God. And then he's given a command to do what to the earth? Yeah, have dominion over it. Rule it. So the first king priest is Adam. And where are you all? Which direction are they exiled from Eden? They're exiled to the east. Whatever Israel's always exiled, they have to go east. And whenever they come west, it's kind of like they're re-entering their promised land, but it's kind of like they're re-entering an Eden thing. The tabernacle, you leave it going east. You enter it going west, right? And we've talked about how there's a connection there with the temple and the tabernacle, right? Um, David really feels like the presence of God, which is centered on the Ark of the Covenant, needs to be in what city? Jerusalem, right? He moves it there immediately whenever he conquers the city. Um, a little bit later in the semester, whenever we get into Revelation and we look at Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there's going to be this big new city called the New Jerusalem. And all of the language about the, about the New Jerusalem makes it sound like this bigger and better version of what? Garden of Eden, right? And whenever we get to that point, I'm going to make an argument. Um, I'm going to pull up a PowerPoint and I'm going to try to make an argument that Jerusalem and Eden, guess what? Are the same thing. Are the same place. I mean, think about it. It works out really well, doesn't it? Um, the first sin is that Adam goes to a tree and says, instead of doing God's will, I'm going to do my own will. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he goes to a tree. What tree does he go to? The cross. But remember, Paul calls it a tree. Cursed is every man who's hanged on a tree. He goes to a, a cross and he says, not... My will, but God's be done. Um, what are they both wearing whenever they go to the tree? Nothing. Nothing. They're completely naked. And the first Adam is supposed to be uh, killed immediately, right? Uh, he's supposed to experience this immediate death when God shows him mercy. And this other Adam, remember the New Testament calls Jesus our, our new Adam, right? This, this new Adam goes to a tree and he deserves to inherit all sorts of blessings and eternal life, but he willingly undergoes the curses that Adam deserved to go. Uh, Adam sins and, it, and the curses, it brings what into the world? Um, what happens to the ground? What does the ground start to produce? Thorns and thistles. What is Jesus wearing on the cross? Crown of thorns. Taking the curse, right? And so um, I'm going to make the argument whenever we get to Revelation 21 and 22 that Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem is where Eden originally was. Um, and I'll, I'll look at indicators um, in Genesis 2 for that. This is something that I don't hold like this. I hold it more a little bit open-handed because there are some difficulties with the view, but I think that it works really well. And I think that whenever we look at how Jerusalem is described, especially in the Psalms and the prophets, um, there is an equation, kind of, kind of an, an, an equation between Eden and Jerusalem. And so I think that's why. I think that the first king priest was Adam. And now whoever reigns in this area of Jerusalem is sharing in this kind of king priest uh, type capacity. Melchizedek is one, David and Solomon are others. And then ultimately um, it's going to be argued that, that Jesus is as well. Um, 
you made the point, Jesus is put to death where? Jerusalem, Jerusalem just outside the city, right? Um, and we looked in the Gospel of John at how whenever Jesus is crucified, the Romans throw him a fake what? Do you remember? What's it called whenever a king is made king? Coronation. Coronation. You remember they throw Jesus like this false coronation? They put a crown on his head. They put purple on him, right? And then what do they always throw um, kings whenever they're heading toward their throne to be high and lifted up? They throw them, you know, usually a parade. Jesus has a parade, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's not a very nice parade, right? But they parade him through the streets. He's carrying his cross. He finally gets, uh, usually at the end of the parade, the the king is high and lifted up on his throne. And Jesus is high and lifted up on a cross, right? (laughs) And so, um, and then what does Pilate put above the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, the the king of the Jews, right? Um, The Gospel of John is playing with this idea that there is a coronation that's happening in Jesus' crucifixion. And ultimately, because Jesus undergoes um, this faithful suffering, right, we saw in Philippians 2, we also saw in Hebrews 1, what does God do because of that? Jesus dies, but then he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven, and where does God place him? At his right hand, on the highest throne in the universe. Right? King of kings, Lord of lords, higher than all the principalities and powers. Um, He's exalted as a very, very high king. And um, maybe you remember this one too. Let me me just tie everything together as well as I can here. Right? Maybe you remember this one too. Um, Galatians chapter 4. Verse 21 and following, this is a little bit of a hard passage, so we won't get into it too much. We just want to find what we need here and then go back to Hebrews. Um, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. Notice Paul's talking about two Jerusalems. The present Jerusalem, which would be the city. Then he talks about something that he's calling the Jerusalem above. What is, what is that? Yeah. The kingdom of heaven is, um, sometimes we even see this language, the heavenly Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem that is above. Um, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, and he is king of the true Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, the one that is above, the heavenly one. And so because of that, he is a king after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Even though he's from Judah, this allows him to be a king priest. So that's a lot of information. That's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but does that help a little bit? Are you excited to look at the Revelation thing? Hopefully. Right. Um, So let's get back to Hebrews. We've done three verses. This is ridiculous. All right. Um, So... Uh, somebody read for us um, verses 4 through 10. Who can do that? Chapter 7. 
Yeah, Josh, will you do it? He raised his hand, Gray. I wasn't cutting you off, so. See how great this man who was who. Okay, sorry. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take riches from the people, to take tithes from the people, I'm sorry, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives the tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met. Yeah, this is a fascinating argument. This is, this is like one of the places in Scripture. I think it's kind of funny. I think it's also a very interesting mode of argumentation. This is like a, a favorite, um, favorite passage for me. So the author of Hebrews, not Paul, um, is trying to um, make the argument that, yes, in fact, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And so he looks at this Genesis 14 story, and he says, all right, you've got, here, here are my great stick figures for the day. By the way, do you guys know that I have to record things for um, Sarah, right? So sometimes my mom also listens, and she calls me the other day, and she was like, so apparently you cannot draw Europe. You guys remember whenever I tried to do that? And, and, and she was like, um, like, yeah, she was, I was kind of embarrassed. She was making fun of me, and it's your fault. So um, we got this, uh, we got Melchizedek over here. Um, we've got Abraham over here. And, and so the, the author of Hebrews is talking about the relationship between them in Genesis 14. And what does Melchizedek give Abraham according to that passage? A blessing. He gives him a blessing. And the author of Hebrews pauses and says, okay, what type of person can bless another person? And he said, it's, it's always the case that the person who can bless another person, the superior can bless the inferior. The one who has authority or higher status can bless the inferior person. So Melchizedek blessing Abraham shows what about their relationship? Melchizedek has more authority. Melchizedek is greater. He, yeah, something about him having more authority. And then Abraham responds by paying a what? A tithe. A tithe. And the author of Hebrews also says, um, you know, how are tithes paid? You pay them to those who are in some sort of authority over you. An inferior pays tithes to a superior. Think about taxes, right? Those who are appointed in positions of authority over you, you pay taxes to them, not the other way around, even though that would be cool. That's not how it works, right? And so he makes this argument from the very nature of the story. We see that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham was. Otherwise, Abraham would not have received blessing from him and would not have paid tithe to him. And then he makes this really weird statement, and he says, you can even say that Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek, for he was still in the loins of Abraham. So we'll talk about it in just a second. Let me tell you something that happened on Sunday. I was preaching um, this past Sunday, and... Um, I was, I was doing the story of Naboth and his vineyard. 
and you remember Ahab and Jezebel murder, right? And so we get to the part where Elijah confronts Ahab. And oh, no. did you hear that? And and he goes, um, you know, um, dogs will lick up your blood and dogs will eat Jezebel. And this little kid goes, ew, <laughs> really loud. <laughs> so I got really tickled over that, and I felt like not many other people did, but apparently they did. A lot of people have commented on that. So, uh, that was so funny. Um, so um, I was just like, yeah, that, that, that isn't you. You're right. Um, <laughs> Levi. Points. Okay. So um, maybe, maybe a way to think about this argument that leaves out the, the loin language, maybe makes it a little bit easier on us, is, is this. Um, we've gone through this, this before. In Jewish thought, who is greater an ancestor or a descendant? An ancestor. Ancestor. That's why all of them look back to their first ancestor, Abraham, right? And they, um, they think very highly about him. They honor him in the way that they remember him. Our great father, Abraham, right? So in that type of thought, who would be greater, Abraham or Levi? Abraham. Abraham. He's, the, he's the ancestor, right? Levi is descended from him, and since he's a, a, a descendant, he's somewhat lesser, right? Not that he's bad, not that he's not important, but he's not Abraham, right? And so the idea here is that since great father Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, he saw that Melchizedek was greater than he was. Then Levi, who, you know, is, is somewhere down the road here, it, it would, let's do it in math terms. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than Levi. Therefore, Melchizedek is what? Greater than Levi. Greater than Levi. There's a sense in which Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because his father Abraham did, right? So, what? <laughs> really weird way of spelling mall. Yes, that is true. So, um, from this, the author of Hebrews tries to establish two points. The first point is, even though Jesus is from Judah, he really can be a priest. He really can be one who goes between you and God and makes peace. He really can be one who offers a sacrifice. Not because he's a Levite, but number two, because he's something greater than a Levite. And the author of Hebrews is making the point here that if these people revert back to Judaism, then they're leaving the Melchizedekian priest for the Levitical priest. They're leaving uh, the king priest from Jerusalem for these priests that, that their sacrifices are lesser. They're, they're less powerful. They're less efficient. They're less effective. Only... The, the faith, only faith in Jesus can give you the Melchizedekian priest, the one who's greater than the priest of, of Levi. All right, so questions on, on that? Does that make sense now a little bit better? Were any of you very confused reading that passage? Izzy said no. Izzy said, I remember all of this stuff about Jerusalem and kings and priests, and, I, and I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you could bring all this. Wow. That, um, oh, wow. You know what? I, I will take that, actually. Um, she, she said she remembers this and everything from Song of Songs. Oh, wow. That's, that's okay. So, 
I mean, if it really is everything from Song of Songs, then yeah, you know. So, all right. You guys, you guys good with this? Wait, did you say Song of Songs or Song of Solomon? When you said this the same book. Because if you said Song of Solomon, then you don't remember everything from Song of Songs. <laughs> the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, right? Is the <laughs> so. I love teaching that book so much. All right. Oh, yeah, we're in Daniel now. All right, so um, tomorrow we're going to... um, Tomorrow we're going to go back and we're going to look at Jesus and the priest. We're going to look at the sacrifice and what Hebrews has to say about that um, and the comparison that he draws. Yeah. Okay, so as soon as you said the word there, going through Daniel, I just remembered that I had a flashback of us going through Daniel and then it asked you about that one ancient manuscript of that one extra chapter of Daniel that no one thinks is canon and has some weird stuff in it, and you said that's dumb, and you didn't actually talk about it at all, and then we moved on. I don't think I said that it was dumb. Or something so I think that I said we don't have time to deal with that, but yeah, I mean, you should read it, and it's part of the Apocrypha, um, but if, it's, if, you're, if you're interested, just, just read it. Read the rest of the Apocrypha while you're at it. It's, um, it's, it's interesting. You'll read about, um, man, my favorite book of the Apocrypha is uh, Tobit. Any of y'all ever read Tobit before? No, that, was, that wasn't in the Apocrypha. That was the Epistle of Barnabas. But um, Tobit um, is, a, is about a guy named Tobias. And his dad, Tobit, is really, really righteous, but then a bird poops in his eyes because he does some bad stuff, and then he, like, goes blind, and then he's like, Tobias, I want to make you happier than I am, so uh, there's this guy that owes me a lot of money, so go get it from him, and then there's an angel that, like, decides to accompany him, and um, Tobias is like, hey, man, who are you? And he's like, I'm your cousin, and he's like, I don't remember you at any family reunion. Yeah, probably not. But I'm your cousin. And the angel just like lies to him and disguises himself and travels with him. And then whenever he gets to the house of the guy that owes his dad money, the guy's like, oh yeah, I'll definitely pay you the money. Also, will you marry my daughter? Because I've been trying to marry her off and like demons keep killing all of her lovers whenever they go in for their wedding night. And the angel is like, hey, I have a solution. Here's a fish. And what you need to do is you need to burn the fish guts on your wedding night, and then the demon will run away, and then use other fish guts and smear it on your dad's face, and his sight will come back. And also, there's a dog that just, like, occasionally shows up in the story, and it's a very good boy. So, um... It is, it is a trip, man. We're talking about Tobit. Yes, I am talking about, he knows. Uh, uh, Dr. Wood made them read the entire Apocrypha. And I've never made any of my classes do that. But um, yeah, you guys are free to go.